everyone. This is Sarah McFarlane from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Joy Wu from Stanford University, who recently joined us for the fourth webinar in the Science of Aging series, a joint webinar series brought to you by Inside Scientific and the American Physiological Society. Joy's presentation discusses bone health with aging and the potential therapeutic approaches to age-related bone loss. Let's dive in. Is it true that lactation is a long-term protective factor for osteoporosis? So uh, in the short term, women who uh, undergo pregnancy and lactation lose a significant amount of bone mass. All of the calcium in the fetal skeleton comes from the mother. And so there can be a decline of 10% or more of the bone mineral density in the months after uh, pregnancy and lactation. However, unlike menopause, the bone loss during uh, pregnancy and lactation is fully reversible. In the long term, I'm not aware of uh, strong data that link lactation and or say the number of pregnancies to osteoporosis risk. Okay, we've got another question here. <clears throat> this question is, what flavanols have been tested for senolytic treatments? Um, question, I'm familiar with the published data on quercetin, which was part of the desatinib and quercetin trials in the rodent studies that I showed. Um, I imagine that flavanols are being broadly investigated for their role here, but it's not my particular area of focus, so I'm not able to answer that in more detail. Okay. Our next question here is, given the focus on aging, can you comment on human age-related differences in parathyroid hormone signaling and Wnt signaling? That's an interesting question. So whether the responses to these signaling pathways differ. So my um, understanding is that the anabolic responses to PTH still occur with age, but I don't know in molecular detail whether the pathways downstream sort of become blunted, but that's an interesting area of investigation. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Another question here is age-related bone formation tracks with sarcopenia. What will happen if only bone mass increases using the technology you're studying? This is a fascinating area of research, the crosstalk between muscle and bone and, and especially um, myokines that may be signaling. So I think that in vivo, of course, bone and muscle are sort of working closely together. So I think it will be important to study the effects, but my sense is that there will be some crosstalk between the organs and it's unlikely that you would have effect only on one without the other. Awesome. We've got a comment and a question here. The comment is great presentation. Okay. The question is, have you or are you planning to inject the inducible osteoblasts into a disease model for osteoporosis or osteopenia? That's a great question. So the challenge with osteoporosis and osteopenia, of course, is that you have you know, humans on average 206 individual bones. And so I'm not sure that injection of induced osteoblasts will necessarily be a, a route to cure for osteoporosis. I do think they will be a valuable model for screening, for instance, high throughput drug libraries, maybe to identify new pathways to target. Um, however, for localized skeletal destruction, some of the examples I gave were fractured nonunion or tumor-mediated destruction. I do think that cellular-based regenerative therapies could be very promising. Great. 
Okay, another question here is why not limit the natural OSKM limiting pathway rather than overexpressing it? Uh, so I think you're referring to uh, the uh, induced pluripotent stem cell protocol overexpressing the OSKM factor. So I'm not aware of a single pathway that uh, is responsible for downregulating the pluripotency factors during embryonic development. And in these protocols, the pluripotent pluripotency factors are usually transiently overexpressed, but, but it's an interesting idea of targeting the inhibitors rather than overexpressing. Mm -hmm. A cool approach, definitely. Mm -hmm. The next question is, have you tried examining the bone phenotype and the response to PTH in GS knockout mice using the Cole one Cree promoter or inducible Cree? Right, another great question. So the collagen-1-driven uh, Cree recombinase would target osteoblasts at a later stage of maturation than we have using the ostrich-driven recombinase, Cree recombinase. We have not uh, used those mice. I know that many years ago, Lee Weinstein and his group at NIH generated the collagen-1-Cree-driven GS-alpha conditional knockout mice, but I am not aware of whether he has treated those mice with PTH to examine their response. Okay, definitely something to look into. Another comment and question. The comment is brilliant presentation. The question is, do you think that exercise training may promote similar benefits for bones as the drugs that you mentioned? Exercise training is very important for bone health. I counsel all of my patients on the importance of exercise uh, regularly and in addition, the benefits of dedicated weight and strength training. I think for many years, we have clinically been quite cautious about advising weight-bearing studies, especially in older patients, out of concern for injury and or even fracture. However, there's a very interesting set of studies called the Lifmore study, in which women around the age, I think the mean age is about 65, were actually subjected to pretty rigorous weight training regimens and demonstrated quite a substantial improvement in bone mineral density. So I think that's a very promising area um, of further study. And I do think that exercise can be very beneficial for bone health. Great. Okay. So this question is, is there any known adverse effects of using PTH in long-term or a short-term basis? Since PTH is bone anabolic, does it intensify vascular calcification or like ectopic bone formation? Right. Great question. And we don't really know the, the answer to that. In preclinical rodent studies, both teriparatide and abeloparatide were associated with an increased risk of osteosarcoma in rodents. And for that reason, both carried for many years a boxed warning on the label from the FDA, limiting lifetime use to two years. Now, teriparatide, which is marketed in the U.S. as Forteo, has been on the market for more than 15 years, and there's no hint that there's an increase in the risk of osteosarcoma in people. And so the FDA has recently uh, released that box warning from teriparatide, um, but not yet from abeloparatide. So we simply don't have uh, long, long-term data. There are patients who have hypoparathyroidism who are treated with a slightly different, different recombinant form of parathyroid hormone for many years. I think eventually we'll have understanding from that group of patients. Great. Another question here. If you focus on improving systemic inflammation or redox <clears throat> balance, do you restore dysregulated endocrine signaling to bone? So that is an area, I think, of very high interest uh, in skeletal aging field. 
it's <clears throat> quite clear that inflammation uh, increases with age and that inflammation can contribute to bone loss, both with aging and in various inflammatory conditions, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis. So there's a lot of interest in how we might be able to target um, inflammation, but it's difficult. It's a systemic process, but it certainly plays a role in aging-related bone degeneration. Okay. Great. Makes sense. Another question here, is the mortality following hip fracture different for men and women? So hip fractures do occur in men and the mortality rate does appear to be higher. Overall, it's thought to be about a one-year mortality rate of 20%. And I've seen studies that have quoted numbers as high as 30% for men. Now, some of that is because men are on average older when they fracture. They start with a higher bone mass at um, peak bone mass. Uh, and so they're often on average about a decade older than women. So there may be other issues contributing to frailty that account for that increased mortality for men. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So this question is, how can we explain that the fracture of the hip decreases after 75? Is this because of reduced activity? You're referring to the um, introductory slides I showed about the distribution of fracture types by age. Um, so some of that could be uh, related to decreased activity with age, but I think it's more likely just that many clinical trials tend to enroll uh, individuals up until the age of 70 to 80. And so the data is uh, not collected at the same rate in older, older populations. So I think we just don't have the numbers for individuals over the age of 80 or 85. And that probably accounts for some of that apparent drop off on those figures. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.